Kentucky Peak. It's great to be with you. My name is Michael, and I'm one of the pastors uh, here at the church. And if this is your very first time, uh, I too want a special welcome, uh, welcome you to our service. Uh, we're very excited about this new series that we're going to be launching into today, kicking off a new journey together as a church. And so, you know, whether you're uh, joining us right now, whether you're uh, right here in Southern California, somewhere across the states, or even around the world, we're just so excited to have you. I hope you've already done what uh, what they recommended earlier, that you've downloaded the uh, the note sheet, one of the two forms, either the kind of the, the traditional form or the new uh, vertical form, that help you follow along today as we continue uh, this, as we start this journey. You're definitely going to need that, so I encourage you to do that if you haven't yet. So if you're ready to go, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to jump in. Let's pray together. So Father, we're so excited to be here at the start of a new journey together as a church, a new season, um, a, a, new, uh, a new adventure as we move into the future that you have us uh, in the midst of increasingly um, just challenging times. And so God, we are so thankful that we can be here together uh, sharing this moment, sharing this day, uh, and together pursuing you as a church. So we pray that you'd meet us by the power of your Holy Spirit I pray that you would be here. I pray that with me that my words would be clear, my mind would be clear. I pray for us as a church as we gather around your word wherever we are right now, that your Holy Spirit would be opening up our eyes to see uh, spiritual reality in a new way. And especially the unseen realm, so we not only can see the reality, we can recognize it and respond to it and move into the future you have for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Well, our story starts today on the edge of a lake. There's a small village here in this town. And uh, as we look on the scene, there's, a, there's an ancient stone building. In fact, it looks about the size of a, a church. But if we were to go up and look through the windows, we would notice it's arranged much differently. But instead of having sort of the traditional pews or even rows of chairs, that the center of the room is empty, but around the sides there are seats or benches around all the perimeters of the room. If we were to look closer, we'd see that there is no electricity in this ancient stone building. There are no lights. There are no sockets or no outlets or no microphones. Now, in this particular morning, it doesn't really matter because the sun is up, the seaside near, you can feel the breezes coming through the window, and there's plenty of natural light in the room to see. And as we're watching and as the room fills up, that as the service begins, a young man is invited to come up and speak. As he begins to get up and talk, every eye in the room is on him. The longer he talks, the more everyone's leaning in. Their body language says that they're mesmerized by his words. And maybe that's why they never saw it coming. That they're so focused in that looking back on that day, no one recognized what was about to happen. No one saw the warning signs coming. But once it started, no one would ever forget what happened on that morning. Well, today we are kicking off a new series. This is called The Resurrected King, Spiritual Warfare in Times of Challenge. 
And I'm really excited about this series. Um, I don't know about you, but whenever I hear that someone is going to teach, give a message, a series on spiritual warfare, uh, I always have a mixed emotional response. Uh, On the one hand, I find I'm always intrigued. I'm excited. I want to hear because I feel like there's so much to learn, so much more for me to learn on this important topic. But on the other hand, I'm always a little bit skittish, a little bit scared, a little bit skeptical because I'm not sure that what I'm about to hear is really grounded in the word and really represents the truth. And sometimes it goes off into wild and wacky land. And so I have this mixed response. And so if you're here today, if you're listening wherever you're listening at home, um, and you have a little bit of either of those responses or both, know that I understand, I share it with you. But the reality is, as we kick off this new series, I'm extremely excited about what God's going to do because uh, I have to be honest with you, I was surprised. This is one of those series that, that caught me by surprise. When I felt about two months ago, the Lord began to put it on my heart, um, I was really taken back. Uh, it's not what I would have expected, but the more I've leaned into it, the more I've prayed, the more I've processed, the more I've studied, uh, the more excited I've, I've become, not only for this important topic that would be important at any, key t- any time in our Christian experience, but because it seems especially appropriate in these times of challenge that we're facing right now in our country, in our culture, and even as a church of Jesus. And so I'm excited about launching into this. And uh, what I want to do today as we kick off this series is I, I want to start by taking a look, a kind of a deep dive into the life and teaching of Jesus and his experience with spiritual warfare. Now, uh, there in your note sheet, you have a section that's called The Resurrected King, The Great Invasion. Uh, and so what we're going to be doing today is we're going to be moving rapidly through several passages of Scripture uh, on the life and ministry of Jesus. And because of that, I've chosen to print them out for you on your note sheet. So because we're moving so rapidly and covering so much, uh, so much space, uh, we're not going to be looking at them in our own Bibles like we normally would. In the, in the future in this series, we'll be opening up our Bibles, we'll be cracking them open, we'll be marking them up, highlighting them like we normally do. But for today, uh, we're going to be looking at them, we're going to be jumping at them through, through your note sheet or on the screen. Now, uh, before we jump in and begin to kind of dive into the life and teaching of Jesus, his experience with spiritual warfare, uh, before we do that, I want to encourage you that if you're new at this, maybe you're not yet a follower of Jesus, you're just coming to Jesus, you don't have your own Bible yet, I'd really highly encourage you as we kick off this series that you would go to your favorite app store and that you would download uh, a, a, a Bible app. It's called Version. It's spelled Y-O-U version. So just Version. Uh, when you go in the app store, it will look like just a simple uh, little brown Bible app. But this is an incredible app because not only is it free, not only does it give you the entire Bible, but it gives you a wide variety of translations to choose from. We use here the New International Version or the NIV. So I encourage you, if you haven't done that, to do that, and then you'll be kind of ready for this series. Uh, But what I want to do today is start this this series on spiritual warfare by looking at spiritual warfare in the life of Jesus. Now, I don't know if you know uh, that much, how much you know about the life of ministry of Jesus, 
But what we're going to see today, that when it comes to spiritual warfare, that for Jesus, that spiritual warfare was not a sidebar. It was not an occasional experience in his life and ministry, but it really went to the heart of who he was and why he came. And so what we're going to do today is just kind of a, a, a flyby of his life and ministry, and some of the, we're going to take a look at some of the key events and turning points in his life. So let's start with, uh, let's start with his baptism. So uh, the ministry of Jesus uh, really starts with his baptism. Now, the prophets of Israel had predicted that when the Messiah came, that he would be anointed by the Holy Spirit like the leaders of old to carry out his mission of bringing the kingdom of God. And this is exactly what happened. When Jesus came, was baptized by John the Baptist in the Jordan, when he came out of the water, there was a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And at that moment, the Holy Spirit descended upon Jesus like a dove to anoint him for his ministry. And what's interesting is that the very first thing that the Holy Spirit led Jesus to do after the Holy Spirit anointed him was to go into the desert, much like the nation of Israel had gone for 40 years after they're coming out of Egypt. Jesus, he led Jesus to go into the desert for 40 days. Uh, and one of the primary reasons was to go into spiritual battle with the enemy. And so you see this there on your note sheet. In Mark chapter one, Mark describes it like this. He says, at once, and he's talking about right after the baptism and the Holy Spirit comes upon him, he says, the Spirit sent him, and in the Greek, the language is very rough. Uh, in the Greek, it's actually drove him. The Spirit drove him out into the wilderness, just like Israel. And he was in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by Satan. So notice this, the very first thing, before he launches his ministry, the Holy Spirit comes on Jesus, and he drives Jesus out into the wilderness to pursue God, uh, to fast, to pray, to prepare for his ministry. But one of the primary reasons was to go one-on-one -on -one with Satan, and here's why. That Jesus, as we'll see, has come to destroy the works of the enemy. And if he's going to destroy the works of the enemy, he has to defeat the enemy at the very start of his ministry. And so as you note here in Mark chapter 1, that this wasn't just like 40 days of fasting and prayer. And then at the end, Satan came to tempt him that he was actually there for 40 days. And this temptation, this spiritual battle was part of that entire 40 day experience. Now, if you're familiar with this account, the story of Jesus and his temptation, at the end of the 40 days, after Jesus had been fasting for 40 days, Satan came with one final assault, three major temptations to get Jesus to compromise to surrender, to stop obeying his father, to use his power for his own personal gain, to bring about the kingdom of God in his own way. But he resisted that temptation, and as a result of that, Jesus round, uh, won round one of his battle with the enemy. In fact, in Luke chapter 4, uh, Luke writes like this. He gives a very insightful look into the life of Jesus. He says, when the devil had finished all this tempting. So he comes the last time, three final temptations. And when he finished them, he left them all until a what? An opportune time. 
And I want you to circle that or underline it on your note sheet. So what, what happened is right here at the beginning of his ministry, the Spirit drives Jesus into the wilderness to go one-on-one with the enemy. At the end of 40 days, when he's resisted for 40 days, he wins his final battle. Satan says, okay, you won round one, and he leaves. He retreats. Jesus took his stand. The enemy realizes he's not going to win this one, and he retreats. But catch this, he doesn't leave him for good. He leaves him until a more opportune time. That he is going to be watching Jesus' life. He's going to be looking for the next opportunity, the next moment of vulnerability. And when he sees that, he will re-engage the battle. But Jesus has won round one. And as a result, Jesus is now going to launch his ministry, Kenshis, in the power of the Holy Spirit. And just a quick sidebar here is that whenever we are in spiritual warfare and we resist and we take our stand, like in James it says, resist him and the devil will flee from you. When we take our stand and the enemy sees we're serious and he leaves us for a more opportune time, that whenever we take our stand, we always come out of that victory. Even if we feel battled or bloodied and beat up, we come out in the power of the Spirit. There is a new level of spiritual power and authority that happens when we take our stand. And this is what happened to Jesus. It says, when the devil had finished all his tempting, he left him until a more opportune time. I want you to remember that phrase for later. We'll come back to it at the end of the message. And then Jesus returned to Galilee, up in the north of the country, in the power of the Spirit. So the enemy came, there was an attack, he resisted it, he pressed into the Father, he leaned on the Word, he took his stand, he won the battle, and as a result, he returned in the power of the Spirit. And it says, news about him spread throughout the whole countryside. Now, in the synoptic Gospels, which is Matthew Mark and Luke. We call them the synoptics because they're very similar to one another. And the synoptic gospels, they all jump from the temptation of Jesus to the launching of his ministry in the north about six months later. In the gospel of John, in the early chapters, we have some insights into what happened between these two events. And of course, we were supposed to start the gospel of John about three months ago, and about three years we'll probably be there. But anyway, as he, as he uh, in the synoptic gospels, they jump from the temptation of Jesus to launching his ministry. And when he launches his ministry in the north, in Galilee, his message is very clear. And if you're, uh, you're kind of new at this following Jesus, or maybe you've never really studied the gospels that much, this is in- incredibly important for you to understand. To understand the life and teaching of Jesus, you have to understand this that Jesus' core message was that the kingdom of God that had been promised by the prophets of Israel for a thousand years, when God would come, return to his people, forgive their sins, their rebellion, that he would uh, pour out his spirit upon them. He would 
The Messiah would come. He would turn all wrongs to right. The core message that Jesus brought is the kingdom of God or the kingdom of the heavens. It is breaking into time and space right here, right now. And so if you look at your note sheet, in Mark chapter 1, so we're still in Mark 1. So Mark 1 starts with, we've got the baptism, then the temptation, and Jesus goes to the north, he launches his ministry. And this is how Mark describes, uh, kind of summarizes his message. He says, so Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God's good news, uh, the gospel of God, the good news, that the time has come. What time? The time prophesied by the prophets, the coming of the kingdom. It's, it's here, it's arrived. The time has come, he said, and the kingdom of God has come near. It's very close. And so he says, you, you need to repent. Don't you need to turn around, come under your king's leadership, under the king's leadership, and, and be following God in your life so you can be part of this kingdom. You need to repent, and you need to believe the good news that I'm telling you, that it's here. You need to listen, and you need to follow. So what's interesting is in Mark chapter 1, that what we see is Jesus comes, he's called by the Spirit, he's anointed by the Spirit, he's sent into the desert, he goes into battle with the enemy, he comes out in the power of the Spirit, he goes north, he lodges his ministry, his message is the kingdom of God is here, uh, and right away what you see is a pushback, opposition, just like when Jesus got baptized, he, he had the opposition of the enemy that as he begins his public ministry announcing the kingdom of God, he's there right away that there is pushback from the kingdom of darkness. What we see here is what Jesus is announcing is this great invasion. The kingdom of the heavens is breaking into the kingdom of this world. And right away, there's going to be pushback from the kingdom of darkness. There's going to be this clash of kingdoms. And we see this in uh, in Mark chapter 1. So, right, so Mark chapter 1, he's, he's baptized, temptation, announces the kingdom, and he moves to a city, Jesus moves to a city on the, on the, uh, the coast of the Lake of Galilee, the Sea of Galilee, called Capernaum. It was a very important city. It was a crossroads of international highway. Uh, there was some Roman presence there, tax collectors there, uh, collecting uh, uh, tax on the goods and services that were coming through. So it's a very strategic location. So he moved from Nazareth, which was sort of out of the way where he'd grown up. He, he takes his mom, he takes his brothers, he, moved, he takes his uh, first disciples, and they move to Capernaum. And uh, as he moves to Capernaum, uh, the very first thing that happens there is Mark says that he's teaching one, one Saturday, one Sabbath in the, the, um, uh, in the synagogue there in Capernaum. Now, what's interesting is this takes us back to the story we started the day with. I don't know the story we started the day with. There was a stone building. It was near the seaside in a small town. But as we looked in through the window, we saw that it looked sort of like a church, but unlike a church, no rows of chairs, uh, seats around the perimeter on the outside, uh, no electricity, no lights. So it's a beautiful Saturday morning, and so it's okay. And we, we watched as this young man gets up and begins to teach, and everyone's locked up, mesmerized. So this is actually a story from Mark chapter 1. It's Jesus' first public appearance 
uh, first public teaching in Capernaum on a Saturday morning on the Sabbath in the synagogue. Now, what's interesting is we know exactly where that synagogue was. In fact, when we go to Israel every year, we always go to this location and we go to the exact location, the synagogue. Now, when you go there today, uh, there is a, the, the ruins of a fourth century synagogue, so several hundred years after Jesus. But here's the thing. Archaeologists tell us it's built on the foundation of the first century synagogue where Jesus actually taught. In fact, when you stand outside, you can see the stones of the foundation from the first century. Uh, and just to give you a feel for this building, remember I said it wasn't super big, about maybe 4,000 square feet. That, that's the, uh, the fourth century version. It would be that big or smaller, the first century. But I thought it'd be fun to show you a couple pictures. So if you look at the screen right here, this is, uh, this is looking down on that fourth century uh, synagogue. Now, you can't really see it, but the shadows in the foreground on the left of the picture, when you're standing there, you can actually see the stones from the first century. And now we're going to go inside that picture, and this is what it looked like in the inside. Again, the fourth century synagogue. But the way synagogues were designed is you'd sit around the outside. You can see those benches, stone benches around the outside. The middle would be left open, and then whoever's teaching uh, that day would be at the, at the top, uh, standing up in some sort of lectern or a seat of Moses or something like that. And so this is the scene that's happening that day. It's a Saturday morning. Jesus has moved to Capernaum. He has been asked to teach, probably by the synagogue ruler, and he is, he's teaching. He's teaching about the coming of the kingdom of God. He's teaching the people what it looks like to listen and follow and be part of this coming kingdom. And right in the middle, we're told that everyone is locked on. They're mesmerized by his teaching. And right in the middle, as he's announcing the coming of the kingdom, that the, there's a clash of kingdoms. And right in the middle, there's a man who's going to stand up and he's going to be a demonized man. Now, uh, whether his neighbors had known prior to this he was demonized, that had a demon, we don't know. But in this moment, as Jesus is bringing the good news of the kingdom, there is a clash. There's an opposition we see this, this, this clash of kingdoms taking place. And so let's see what happens. So, in Mark chapter 1, remember this is all Mark chapter 1. This is his very first public appearance in the Gospel of Mark. So, they went to Capernaum. This is Jesus and his first few disciples and so on. And when the Sabbath came, so it's a Saturday, Jesus went to the synagogue and he began to teach. Most likely he was asked to teach. And so, the people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority. Um, not as the teachers of the law. So they're, they're leaning in, right? They're, they're mesmerized. And right in the middle of the service, as Jesus is teaching about the kingdom, uh, a man in their synagogue who is possessed by an impure spirit, so a demonic spirit, he cries out, what do you want with us? So he, he jumps up, uh, perhaps a change of personality, a different voice very likely, and he begins screaming at Jesus, this challenge, what do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? 
Now, this is interesting because in Greek, there is no punctuation. And so often when we're translating Greek, we have to decide, is this a question or a statement? Here, the New International Version interprets this as a question. Many scholars would see it as a statement. You've come to destroy us. We'll come back to that in a minute. And he says, but catch this, I know who you are, the Holy One of God, which is a, a, a term for the, in other words, the Messiah. Now, I want to highlight several things from this account, and we'll come back to it. Uh, number one, I want you to catch this, that this demonic spirit, he knows who Jesus is. He, he knows not just that who he is physically, at Jesus from Nazareth, I mean, Everyone would have known that. But he knows who he is. He knows he's the Messiah. He may be the only one in the room who knows that. That this spirit knows. Now, this should be of no surprise because in the unseen realm, Satan knows who Jesus is. If he he knows he's been anointed with the Spirit. He's, that's it's already happened. That temptation has happened. And so apparently there's a close watch on Jesus. And when he goes north and launches his ministry, the alert is out in the unseen realm. And this man there, this demonized man, as Jesus brings the message, he can't take it any longer. He has to attack. He has to challenge. And so in that moment, he stands up. The second thing I want you to notice is not only does he recognize him, he knows why Jesus has come. Or at least he has a very good idea. Whether it's a statement or a question, you have come to destroy us, he understands the ramifications. When Messiah comes, this is a clash of kingdoms. This is a declaration of war, of the kingdom of heaven against the kingdom of darkness. And number three, notice, like I said, how he feels compelled to challenge Jesus. He cannot let this teaching just go on. He has to test his strength. He feels compelled to interrupt him and stop this teaching. But of course, what's, what's interesting, remember, this is the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. So what is about to happen, many of them had never seen happen before. The first century world, as we'll be learning in this series was very cognizant of the reality of demonic spirits. They lived in fear of demonic spirits. And when this confrontation happened, I'm sure everyone in, in, the, in the room is scared to death. What's going to happen? This power of darkness is manifesting, and everyone is afraid except Jesus. And I want you to notice how he responds he says, be quiet, Jesus said sternly. Uh, that's not a great translation. Uh, in the Greek, much more uh, rough. Uh, it would be more like silence. It's a command of authority. You no longer have the right to speak. Be silent. And then Jesus says, come out of him. And this impure spirit, I'm sure, enraged, wanting to resist but having no power. He shakes the man violently in his last act of rebellion. 
and he comes out of him with a shriek, a scream. I tell you, some of you are there. You would never forget this first power encounter between Jesus and the powers of darkness. And so the people are blown away. There it says they're amazed, they're amazed and asked each other, what is this? Like, what's going on? A new teaching. Remember, they've been just riveted on his teaching, <clears throat> but with authority. He even gives orders to impure spirits, and they obey him. They're just blown away at this level of power. And so news about him, I mean, Instagram's going crazy, social media's going crazy. News about him spread quickly over the whole region of the Galilee. Now, here's what I want you to catch. Mark chapter 1, let's see how it's set up. Jesus comes, he's baptized, he's anointed with the Spirit. Spirit drives him into the wilderness to encounter the enemy. Wins that, comes out in the power of the Spirit, launches his ministry, the kingdom of God is here, right away challenged by darkness. Jesus demonstrates his power. And what I want you to catch is this is not an isolated event. This level of spiritual warfare is not an add-on to what Jesus did, it's why he came. In fact, at the end of the chapter, we're still in Mark chapter one, this is how Mark summarizes what Jesus started doing. He says what happened at Capernaum, teaching and exorcism, that's what he did. In fact, in Mark chapter one, it says, and so he traveled throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. He just replicated what happened in Capernaum. And a few chapters later, by now he's, he's uh, recruited his 12 disciples. They've had some time under their belts. They've seen him. They've learned from him. He's now going to send them out two by two so they can do what he's been doing. And look what he says. It says, calling the 12 to them, Mark chapter 6, he began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over impure spirits. And so what I want you to catch is that these uh, demonic encounters, these exorcisms, not a sidebar, they became such a hallmark of the ministry of Jesus that his enemies, the religious leaders, felt like they had to speak to it, that they had to somehow come up with a new narrative because there was no question Jesus had incredible power over the demonic realm. Everyone could see that. They couldn't deny the power, so they needed to come up with a new narrative to undercut why he had this power. And so their narrative went like this. They began spreading the word. Well, yeah, Jesus has power over the demonic, but the reason is he is in league with the demonic. Uh, he is uh, like a high-ranking leader in the demonic realm, and that way he can order other lieutenants, like, like lower officers, he can, he can order them around, and that's why he has authority. And Jesus says, that is the craziest narrative I've ever heard. He said, if that were true, it'd be like there's civil war in the, in the kingdom of darkness. If generals are coming along, telling lieutenants and colonels to knock off what they're doing. It's like a civil war. He said, that is not what's happening. He said, what's happening is that I told you the kingdom of God is breaking in. And what is happening in front of your eyes with these demonic cases is evidence that what I'm saying is true. The kingdom of darkness is retreating. In fact, There in your note sheet, in Luke chapter 11, this is the context, you know, where they were saying, hey, this is why he has power. 
Jesus says, no, this is the real reason. This is the true narrative. If I drive out demons by the finger of God, by the power of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. In fact, he said, uh, let, me, he says, let, me, let me give you an illustration. He said, let's say there's like a drug lord. Let's say that there's like a, a kind of a, a mafia leader, right? And so they're, they're very powerful and they've taken control of lots of people and they've enslaved them and they've got this huge walled compound and they've got armed guards. He says, that, he says that, that works great for them until someone stronger comes, kicks down the door, takes out the guards, and now they're freeing the captives. He said, that's what's happening. I am coming into Satan's kingdom, kicking down the door, rescuing captives. That's what's happening. And so he says, he goes on, he says, when a strong man, fully armed, guards his own house, his possessions are safe. He said, but when someone stronger, that would be Jesus, attacks and overpowers him, he takes away the armor, the weapons at which the man trusted, he divides up his uh, his, plen- his plunder. So what I want you to catch is this whole issue of spiritual warfare is not a sidebar. It's how Jesus saw his ministry, coming into the kingdom of darkness, stripping Satan of his power, setting captives free. Now, of course, the decisive battle in this spiritual war is going to take place at the cross. Uh, What's interesting is looking back, it's easy to tell this now, that at the time, uh, Satan was behind this attempt, at least in his own mind, he was behind this attempt to take out Jesus. Uh, His thought was, if I can kill the Messiah, it will stop the kingdom. And so we'll see this as we go through this series. He was working very hard behind the scenes motivating the religious leaders, motivating the Roman governor, motivating the crowds, motivating Satan to take out Jesus. What he didn't understand is that in taking out Jesus, he was actually taking down his own kingdom. And so Jesus, of course, realizes this. And so the last week of his life, Jesus comes into Jerusalem. He knows he's going to be arrested. He knows he's going to be executed. He knows he's going to be crucified. He knows how he's going to die. And earlier that week, Jesus says this on your note sheet in John chapter 12. Uh, He says, now, now is the time for judgment on this world. This is a rebel world. It's ruled by the prince of the power of the air. He'll, He'll call the prince of this world. And he said, and th- this world is under rebellion, and now is the time when judgment, kind of final condemnation, the death sentence has been issued over this world. So he says, now is the time for judgment on this world, and now the prince of this world, his name for Satan, will be driven out, driven out of power. And he said, and I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, speaking of his, the way he's going to die, that I will draw all men to myself. So whereas Satan was trying to take Jesus out to stop the kingdom, Jesus understands that actually in taking him out, the kingdom will be established. That, it's, that, 
This act, this final act of killing the Messiah is the final act of judgment on this world and judgment on the ruler of this world and that through his death, he will drive out the prince of this world and he will rescue the captives, drawing them to himself. So again, what I want you to catch this very kind of, we lay the foundation for this series. What I want you to catch is that when Jesus came, that spiritual warfare was not a sidebar of his ministry. It's why he came. In fact, later in the New Testament, his closest friend and disciple, the, the disciple John, the apostle John, he will summarize the, the ministry of Jesus in this way. There in your note sheet, in 1 John 3, the reason that the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. I want you to catch it. The reason Jesus came was to destroy the devil's work. This spiritual warfare, not a sidebar, it goes to the heart of what it means, of why Jesus came. Now, what I want to do in the time that we have left today is I want to highlight three important principles that flow out of the life and teaching of Jesus that will carry us through every step of the way in this series. We'll come back to these again and again. So there in your note sheet is a section, the resurrected king, the clash of kingdoms. And so let's jump in. Three points, won't take a long time, but this will be important for us to get this foundation as we move forward. The first point, it's sort of obvious as you go through this passage, is that spiritual warfare is very real. This unseen realm, this realm of the enemy, this organized, it's very real. In fact, what we've seen today, it's impossible to understand the life and teaching of Jesus apart from the context of spiritual warfare. And it's so interesting, we live in today in a culture where, where there's sort of such mixed feelings about the unseen realm. Like on the one hand, we're a very skeptical culture. Most of us have been raised in a, the kind of a Western world culture. We've drunk this from the time that we were young. The, the theory of kind of a, a random evolution, right? This, this the world just sort of happened, sort of this secular, naturalist, materialist view of reality. It's extremely anti-supernatural. Um, and so unless we can, and we can see it, we can touch it, we can measure it, we can put it under a microscope, it doesn't exist, right? And we've all been impacted by that. Whether you're a believer in Jesus or not, we've all drunk deeply of this mindset that's coming at us 24-7. And so that leads to a tremendous skepticism about the unseen realm. But on the other hand, we live in a culture, and perhaps because of this Western, secular, materialist, naturalist view, this is so hungry for the supernatural. And so we live in the midst of a culture that's increasingly open and experimenting with anything supernatural. We, we see it 
Uh, we, we see it in the, uh, the rise of the New Age movement. We, we see it in uh, the, the rise and exploration of witchcraft in Wicca. We see it in the popularity of crystals, astrology, tarot cards, psychics, uh, anything paranormal. We see it in the revival of pagan religions going on right now. And so we live in the midst of this culture that on the one hand uh, wants to say that the unseen realm is, is not even there. This is all mythology. And this other side of our culture that's openly uh, embracing and pursuing this, in fact, uh, many of us, even as followers of Jesus, so the Bible is so clear, do not mess with this stuff, that we are pursuing, we are open to, we are exploring, whether it's astrology or occult or tarot cards or psychics or whatever it is, there's a hunger for the supernatural, even for us who are followers of Jesus. Though the Bible has warned us so clearly, don't mess. It's extremely dangerous. You're opening yourself up to attacks of a very real dark side. So we live in the midst of a culture that's sort of almost like schizophrenic in the way that we look at the unseen realm. And yet what I want you to catch today is that if you're a follower of Jesus, if you believe the Bible is the word of God, if you believe that these accounts that we are studying today are accurate, what I want you to catch is it is impossible to even begin to understand the life, the teaching, the ministry of Jesus apart from the reality of the unseen realm. Number two, the second principle that we see today in the teaching of Jesus is that when we come to Christ, we change kingdoms. That when we become a follower of Jesus, that what happens by definition is we switch kingdoms. We were transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. And so, we, we saw this day in the teaching of Jesus. He announces that the kingdom of God is near. He calls people out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God. It's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. But this is language that's used not only by Jesus, but continued to be used to describe what it means to be a follower of Jesus as we move out into the New Testament. And I want to give you a couple examples. The first example comes from the life of the apostle Paul. And so many of you know that the Apostle Paul, when he comes to Jesus, he meets Jesus on the road to Damascus. Uh, Jesus commissions him to be an apostle, to speak for him. And many years later, maybe 20 years later, Paul's in prison in Caesarea, the seaside town of Caesarea. He's been there for two years. He's appealed his case to Caesar. Uh, the Roman governor Festus has said to Caesar, you will go. But he needs to come up with some charges that will make sense of, like, what are the charges against Paul? So on this particular day, Paul is brought in with lots of pomp and circumstances. There's a king, a visiting king named Agrippa, his wife Bernice. Uh, they, they have some Jewish background. So this, this Roman governor Festus is like, hey, could you help me figure out what to say to send Paul as we send him to Caesar to be tried by Caesar. I need, I need some appropriate charges. And so in the midst of this, Paul is, is given the opportunity to speak for himself, to give a defense for his life. And in the process, he takes the opportunity to share his story about how he met Jesus. And when he, when he gets to the part about what Jesus told him, how he called him to be an apostle and to speak for him, this is what Paul, how, what Paul said that Jesus said to him. 
It's there in Acts 26. So Jesus is speaking. He says, I am sending you, sending you, Paul, to the Gentiles. So though Paul was a Jew, his particular audience Jesus was sending him to was Gentiles. They catch the language. He says, I'm sending you to Gentiles, number one, to open their eyes. So we're going to see this language as we go through this series that Satan blinds us to spiritual realities, who God is, who we are, the path to life, and that when the Holy Spirit comes on, he opens our eyes. So he says that I'm sending you to open their eyes so they may turn from darkness to light, right? the two kingdoms, darkness to light, and catch us from the power of Satan to God. So what we're taught in the New Testament, and we'll be seeing this in the, in the next, uh, we'll see it actually next week, the next two weeks, is that the New Testament's very clear that before we come to Jesus, whether we know it or not, we are part of the kingdom of darkness. We are under the leadership of the dark side of Satan himself, that we've been brought under his leadership for his purposes. And so by definition, when someone comes to Jesus, what's happening is we're switching kingdoms. We're switching sides. Eyes are open, switching from darkness to light, moving from the kingdom of Satan to the kingdom of God. Now, in fact, that's exactly what Paul says in his letter to the Colossians, these new Christ followers in Colossae. The next verse, he says, uh, he, says he, God, God has rescued us. Remember Jesus kicking the door down, rescuing the, 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 the slaves. He's rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and he's transferred us into the kingdom of his dear son. Here's what I want you to catch. The moment that you come to Jesus, if you've not yet come to Jesus, this will happen when you do. The moment you come to Jesus, you transfer kingdoms. You switch kingdoms. You change kingdoms. This goes to the heart of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. This is what repentance is all about. When we come to Jesus, what we do is we switch sides. We cross the line between kingdoms. We lay down our arms. We bow our knee. We beg forgiveness for our crime of high treason against our true king. We ask for mercy for the gift he has promised of total amnesty for all crimes against our true king. And we receive this gift of forgiveness and new life. And we renounce our allegiance to the kingdom of darkness. And we swear our allegiance to the kingdom of light. And we, come, we become a part of that kingdom. So here's what I want you to catch. Is that the moment that we come to Jesus, we switch kingdoms. And that leads to number three. Number three is that when we come to Christ, we become a target. Now, this just makes sense, right? That once we were part of Satan's kingdom, we were under his leadership. We'll see that next week. When we come to Christ, we cross over this line. We switch sides in this spiritual war. We renounce our allegiance to the king of darkness. We swear our allegiance to the kingdom of light. And when that happens, that because we have switched sides, there's a new target on our back. Now, before this, Satan may have been targeting us to destroy us, to use us, whatever. 
but there is a new level of attack that takes place when we switch sides in the spiritual war because now we have become his sworn enemy and now we have power because of the authority of Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit to do damage to the kingdom of darkness. And because of that, there is a new effort, a new strategic effort to take you and I out of commission. And so we see this in the New Testament in this famous passage on spiritual warfare in Ephesians 6. We'll be looking at this, this will be our core passage for this entire series. We'll come back to it time and time again. But today, we're just going to look at it briefly. In chapter 6, as, as Paul is finishing up his teaching in this letter, he says, finally, so he's wrapping up the letter, he said, be strong in the Lord. Now, earlier in the chapter, early in this letter, we've learned that, that Jesus is the resurrected king who's conquered the powers of darkness. We'll learn more about that next week. So he's, now, he's bringing them back, says, be strong in the resurrected king and be strong in his mighty power. Not your power, but learn how to tap into his power. He says, put on the full armor of God. So he's using a military analogy here. He says, so that you can take your stand against the devil's, what? His schemes. In the Greek, it's the word methodius. It's where we get the word methods. What Paul says is when you come to Christ, you switch sides, you have a new enemy. There's a target on your back. You have an enemy. He's brilliant. He is powerful. He's strategic. He's been around forever. He knows how human beings are working, and he is strategically working to take you out of the gate. And he says, if you're going to win this battle, you have what you need, but if you're going to win, you have to learn how to tap into the resurrected king and his power, and you have to put on the armor that he'll provide for you. Without that, you don't have a chance. With that, you can win. And notice that the emphasis is that you can take your stand. You know, if you've ever done much uh, reading in Roman history, Roman warfare, and I've done a lot of this, that one of the lessons I've learned that's been so helpful is that in Roman's powerful army, that their, their ability to take a stand against the enemy's charge was amazing. But the only time they would lose is when that stand was broken and they would break ranks and turn their backs. And when that would happen is when the rout would happen. And so, so Paul says here that as followers of Jesus, there's a target on your back. You have to learn how to tap into King Jesus, his resurrected power, put on his armor so you take your stand. Like Jesus did, right, in the wilderness. He took his stand. And he says, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It may look like it. It may look like the struggle is your spouse. The struggle is your kids. The struggle is your business, your boss, the culture we're in. He says it's not actually, it may look like that. In the same way that when Jesus was killed, it looked like it was the religious leaders. It looked like it was the Roman governor. It looked like it was the crowd. It looked like it was Judas. But behind all of that, there were some powers pulling strengths. And he says, the same in your life. He said, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's against, look what he says, the rulers, the authorities, 
the powers of this dark world. There's a strategic alliance behind the scene, a dark alliance, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And therefore, put in the full armor of God so that when the, what? The day of evil. When the day of evil comes, you may be able to stay your ground. Now catch this. If you've ever studied much about war, you've ever watched movies on war, documentaries on war, read books on war, heard of war, you know this, that in a war, not every day is a battle. Much of war is sitting around, waiting, preparing. And then there comes the day of evil. There comes that moment when the enemy engages. And when the enemy is coming, that's when it's important that you're ready. You've got your armor on. You've strengthened yourself in the Lord and you are ready to go. Remember what we learned today about Jesus? That after his baptism, he went into the wilderness. It was the day of evil for 40 days. After that day of evil, he resisted. He took his stand. He won, and Satan left him to a more opportune time. These more opportune times are the day of evil. And men, men and women, I believe that right now in our lives, in our culture, it is a day of evil. That behind the scenes, the battle is raging. In your life, with all the stressors of COVID, the unrest in our culture, all that's going on, these things leave us vulnerable. We get tired, we get fatigued, we get worn out, and it's easy to put our armor down. And these times, we are in an evil day. And we need to be plugging into the Lord, learning how to be strengthened in him, and how to put on that armor so when the evil day comes, we are ready to take our stand. He says, so you may be able to stand your ground, and after you've done everything, you put on all the armor, that after you've done everything, you stand. And so this is, the, this is, the, this is what we're going to be exploring together in this series. We're going to be praying that God opens our eyes to the reality of the unseen realm. And that together, through the power of the Holy Spirit, we will learn how to recognize and how to respond to the reality of the spiritual battle that we're in. And so I hope you can be with us every week as we build, each week builds on the next. We, we build this mosaic of spiritual warfare what it looks like to recognize and respond, to put on the full armor of God so that we can thrive, that we can grow, that we can join Jesus in his mission, that we can carry out his vision for our lives and catch us not just for our lives, but it's for our families, it's for our friends, it's for our life groups, it's for our church, and it's for our culture. There's a lot of stake. The battle is real. And so I pray that you would come with us on this journey that together we could explore what God will teach us about the reality of the battle and how to recognize and respond in such a way that we take our stand 
and win. Let's pray together. Well, Father, we thank you so much for this incredibly important topic. We thank you for calling our church to it at this time. You know, Father, this was not my idea. You know how surprised I was. But I am so excited about the timing. I'm so excited about what you're going to do. We pray that you would take away the blinders on our eyes. We pray that you would open us to the reality of the unseen realm. Like Elisha said, Lord, open the eyes of this servant so we can see that greater are those with us and those who are against us. And that we would have a new vision and understanding of the reality of the battle we're in and how to recognize and respond to the reality of the unseen realm. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.